Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Olivia Potts. And I'm Laura Prendergast. And today we're delighted to be joined by Al and Kitty Tate. Al and Kitty are father and daughter and run the Orange Bakery in Watlington and are authors of the new cookbook, Bread Song. Kitty is our youngest ever guest on Table Talk at just 18 years old. At the age of 14, she was struck by crippling anxiety and depression and had to leave school. Bread Song is the story of how Kitty and Al rebuilt Kitty's life with the help of bread and how baking changed their lives. Kitty and Al, welcome to Table Talk. Thank you very much. We're thrilled to be here. Yeah, so excited. As listeners know, we always start this podcast with the same question. I'm going to ask you both the question. So, Al, what are your earliest memories of food? I'm not the youngest person on this podcast. <laughs> uh, uh, Only or, just. Or in this room. In fact, probably, uh, you know, between us all, if you added the rest of you up, it would match me. I, I'm a child of the 70s, so basically... That meant I was exposed to probably the most extraordinary food that, that has ever been created because everything was either processed or you added hot water to it. So smash, I think, came out in the 70s. Sausages that, that, that uh, hadn't seen a pig came out in the 70s. Uh, <laughs> I Fender's love those Crispy pancakes came out in the 70s. So it was a true culinary experience and, and I don't think there's anyone who's nostalgic. <laughs> well, it's actually some of our guests are sometimes a bit nostalgic for those things. Kitty, what about you? What are your earliest memories? Earliest memories? So we just, we ate a lot, a lot of bread, <laughs> which, no surprise, but this wasn't good bread. I mean, we would eat like the 99p white slice we bought from the shops, but I remember I'd always get dad would make a sandwich and I'd be like, I'd open it up and I'd be so excited. I'd be like, oh, it's cheese and ham, it's cheese and ham. And then I'd have a bite and I'd realise it's just ham because the cheese was butter. So most of my childhood <laughs> is just a lot of butter-laden food made by Dad. Yeah. I'm not complaining. It was great. I love it. I, th- I think that's a good basis for a, for a food life. And what, what about mealtimes? Were they important as a family to you guys? No, absolutely. I mean, it was a sort of chance to... I mean, we're a classically sort of dysfunctional family. So it was a chance for everyone to decide that they didn't like one particular item on the table at mm. any particular time. Yeah. And there's normally... We normally had too many animals involved as well. So there would normally be a cat on the table. On the table. I mean, um, that, that's, not, that's not really no. changed, has it? Uh, a dog by your foot or on a lap. Uh, so there were a lot of us at the table. The dogs were there to eat the stuff that us as kids would just kind of put under the table. They were great hoovers. <laughs> and who who's in charge of the cooking? Al, are you, do you do most of the cooking? Uh, it was. So Katie, my wife, has brilliantly carved out a niche of being a really, really bad cook. I think she does it on purpose. Yeah. The other day she tried to do <laughs> pasta but put the pasta in the, in the water when it was cold and I just thought that's yeah. how you do it. But in an amazing way. <laughs> but, it's, but it's very, very deliberate. So she's basically, mm. she's played the long game and she's created this this myth that she is uh, truly terrible. And as a result, no one wants to eat her cooking, even if it's fine. And therefore she oh, doesn't, no one will let doesn't her have cook. to cook. Yeah, yeah, no one lets her cook. So she's she's quite happy with that. We think we're happy with it. Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, so it's me who cooks. But Kitty's very good. Well, I'm not a good cook. I'm a good garnisher. So I like to take any dish and then just put like frills around it and it looks amazing, even if it's very simple. But the actual basics I can't do. I'm a food arranger, I call myself. <laughs> now, what do you tend to cook for the family? 
So it tends to be uh, a real sort of mixed metze of things. I'm very, very good with leftovers. Butter-based I think that's part of the, um, yeah. the 70s childhood thing as well. <laughs> the sort of, you know, coming out of the winter of discontent, we just had to, you know, make do with what we could find. So, yeah, no, left leftovers are much better with... I'm not very good at sort of creating something from scratch. I'm better at alchemy from... from Dad something. can take two ingredients and then just churn out a roast with it. Don't know how. Don't want to know. <laughs> and we normally ask questions about school food. I imagine the two of you had slightly different experiences of school food. Well, to be honest, I think we probably had fairly similar. Well, yours was very positive. You quite like school food. I love school food, yeah. but our food was still stuck in the 1980s, 70s. So everything that we had was deep fried. They were like Rough. potato tots, uh, sausages. I'd never seen a pig, like you said. It is a lot of fried potato. It was great for teenagers. I remember my favourite thing was um, the school did a, and this was in the healthy section, a sausage, bean and cheese panini. And they'd managed to make wow. it in a way that the beans didn't make the bread soggy. It was just alchemy. It's genius. Kitty also briefly had packed lunches rather than school dinners. <gasps> Which I'm still traumatised about because... Well, that's the, that's the, well, the butter slices, but... We did. We we won slightly because every day I'd send Kitty off with a very bizarre sort of uh, mixture of pasta or rice or something. Dad would put everything that I liked, so everything I liked, but into one box. So it'd be like pasta with pesto and then tuna and then mushrooms and then cheese and then, which is sometimes incredible, but sometimes just just too much. It's like Christmas and Easter <laughs> yeah. and birthday all in one. But the good thing was it. that uh, I also made sure that I sent Kitty off without any cutlery. So she right. would have to borrow a fork from school and, every, day. Uh, every day. And so our entire fork collection comes from Watlington Primary School. We're yeah. very, very <laughs> Nice, and forks. Yeah. And could you tell us, because it was when you were 14, I think I'm right in saying you, you got into baking. Tell us a bit about that and how that all came about. Mm, so when I was 14, I was, I was quite a happy, bubbly kid. And I was also the youngest of three. But then suddenly I started to really struggle with anxiety and depression. And I always loved to act at school. And I was very good at putting on this mask of a very happily bubbly kid. Because, you know, I thought if I could wear this mask, it meant that maybe I, wouldn't, I wasn't so sad. Maybe this wasn't so serious. And then one day that mask kind of just shattered. And for, for Dad and my whole family, it felt like it was out of nowhere. But for me, it was a long time coming. I started to just... I just couldn't function anymore. I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. I couldn't go to school. I couldn't do really simple things that just basically kept you alive. And I remember one day just going downstairs and watching my dad make a loaf of bread. And this wasn't like beautiful sourdough, any of that. This is just flour, water, salt, a tiny bit of yeast. You mix it together, just like gloopy sludge and I actually remember just taking the mickey because I was like I'm not I'm not eating that that's not edible but then the next day he scooped it out and he put it into a tin and he baked it and what came out was just so safe it just smelled so warm and comforting and I felt safe so then I got him to teach me how he made it and well that was how we first made our first loaf and Al tell us how how did you get into baking what was your journey into that world uh, so I'm, I, I defy the whole Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours <laughs> bit. And I probably put in that amount and I got worse, I think, as time went on. So I've always I've loved bread and always loved baking, but never, ever cracked it because all sorts of different reasons. 
partly to do with space and tools and ovens and but mainly really to do with me and so I used to make these sort of huge great heavy breeze blocks. Dad would bring it out onto the table yeah. at lunchtime or supper or whatever and we'd all just go for the white slice and then leave this pile of homemade bread in the corner. <laughs> and it would sit there kind of like a paperweight in the in the bread bin for a few days and then I'd sort of discreetly pop it away in the bin and then I found this amazing method by um, Jim Leahy, who's this American baker, where it was no need and it was no mess. So basically, that was the key thing, because I actually got banned from making bread at home in my <laughs> kitchen, because I was so sort of, it, it would look like some terrible dystopian nightmare after I'd been trying to sort of knead my bread. And this method, you just put your flour, your salt, your tiny, tiny bit of yeast and water together and you mix it up and you leave it. And overnight it ferments. And then in the morning you scoop it out, you let it prove and you bake it. So you, you, it takes a matter of minutes when you add it all up, although it takes 12 hours to sort of go from, from start to finish. But it was amazing because you get something halfway to sourdough. And that, that was the loaf that, mm. that Kitty saw me do. The no need method. Yeah. And it's the first recipe actually in our book. At what point was it, Kitty, that, that you realised that bread could be some kind of lifeline for you? Mm, I think for me, it was probably the first loaf I made. Just being able to make something. And I remember mixing the dough and just feeling all these bubbles under my fingertips and realising that there are these hundreds of living, tiny little microorganisms which were there because I created them and they needed me. And it also gave my life routine and structure and because I was making something which other people also loved it gave it purpose I wasn't just making Victoria sponges because I liked baking I was making loads because yes I loved making them but other people loved it too and that gave me a real sense of yeah like I said like purpose and joy that I was waking up and going through the day for something I had this product to share at the end of it and Al, as a father, what's it been like watching Kitty develop, both in terms of her baking and her well-being? I think when, when Kitty, Kitty sort of fell ill, it, it, it was like sort of juggernaut slamming into a wall. You know, it, everything mm. stopped in a very dramatic way. And like I said, for me, it had been going on for a long time, but for my family, it was just like, bam, out of nowhere. And, and I think we, yeah, we, we were desperate to try and do something anything we could to sort of give kitty a lifeline out of that dark space that she was in and we tried everything and nothing nothing worked and so that first loaf and and seeing kitty just show just a glimmer of life and excitement was extraordinary because you know we just got a tiny sort of sense of of the old kitty being there and and it took a very long time but it was it I do feel like it was basically, you know, the family was one crutch and bread was the other crutch mm-hmm. that Kitty was able to sort of depend on. And seeing her develop has been amazing because I've been able to be there at first hand, just literally on her shoulder and <laughs> witnessing this extraordinary development of talent. I mean, Kitty's just got this natural flair and instinct for uh-huh. how to sort of work with bread and dough. Um, which, you know, again, defies the Malcolm Gladwell in that she's probably put in 10 hours and she was, she was already better than I was after my 10,000. So, um, and and it's, it's brilliant. And I, I sort of very happily sit in the, in the slipstream 
of, of Katie's inventiveness and, and intuition. Aww. And, and when did you realise that this could, could be a business for you? I think a lot of people ask us, like, when did you decide to leave school? When did you decide to open a bakery? And none of it was ever a decision. Everything we did just happened because we, for me, I was in this pursuit and love of bread. And for my dad, it was because he was trying to get me away from this really, really mm. dark I think we're still space. both waiting for, for, for life to slow down and then yeah. to work out what we do want to do. Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's been an extraordinary roller coaster of, of things just happening and kind of saying yes to things, yeah. really, hasn't it? Yeah. yeah, I'm just going with it. So no, no logic, no strategy, probably some terrible decisions along the way. But it's been an amazing journey in terms of, of what we've discovered and where we've ended up. And was your first bakery a scout hut? Once you stopped working at home, was it a scout hut you moved into? Yeah, so that's where we're working at the moment. It's this little scout house that? in Watlington. And it had been abandoned for about four years. But when we worked, walked in, it was like the scouts had just left. Like there were hula hoops in the corner, bean bags. We still got the scout knotboard in the bakery itself and some of the badges and some of the plaques. There's still the smell of fear. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> so that's where we're baking now. And what's been the response from the people of Watlington? Well, sorry, yeah. <laughs> I kind of always say that, like, we, again, we never really decided to open a bakery, but Watlington kind of decided that we were going to open a bakery. So from every single step and from well, every single part of the bakery, Watlington has been there. They were there at the beginning, they were there now. If we're experimenting, they're willing to try. If when we were doing our subscription service, it's word spread so fast. So yeah, it's been really lovely, but Wallington, definitely, we couldn't do it without them. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always fascinated by what the perfect size of, of different things are, you know, perfect size of a company or perfect size of a road or a school or whatever. And I think Wallington is a perfect sized community. And it's big enough that you're not on top of each other the whole time, but it's small enough that everyone does know you and is very sort of supportive. And so, yeah, we've been incredibly lucky with the way that our community has has made things possible for us. And, and like Kitty said, they're very indulgent. They're very good customers in that they go with our bizarre experiments. They forgive <laughs> us when, yeah, <laughs> when things don't work uh, and they come back for more when things do. And what, and what tend to be your best sellers? Mm. That's a great question. So we, again, we are many changes the whole time, but one of the most popular ones is probably... I mean, we do these Chelsea buns and I always had a grudge against Chelsea buns because I was like, oh, it's like the grandma to a cinnamon bun, you know, who wants raisins? And they're always quite dry. And But I got asked so many times to make them, mainly by 80-year-olds, which is most of the population in Wellington. So I decided, <laughs> right, I was going to make these Chelsea buns, but I was going to make them different. So we get the raisins and we soak them in chai masala tea and then we also add thin slices of crispy apple and we roll it all out with like butter and cinnamon and sugar and they are amazing actually yeah and our, uh and kitty's really inventive in terms of what we put in the bread as well so miso and sesame is a big seller but last week we had kimchi and cheese which is lovely olive almond and miso and sesame yeah marmite always is is fantastic we're trying an alu gobi loaf (laughs) this week so i mean it's 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 a really good vehicle bread for for all sorts of experimentation
How has it changed your relationship working alongside one another, particularly in such close quarters and at weird times? I think, again, it's a really, really interesting question because we were never actually... We were close growing up, but just like a dad and daughter, we weren't really, really close. But when I started to really struggle with my mental health, dad understood a lot of the things I was going through. And then even now, like when we were in the bakery, yeah, we're father and daughter, but we're more like work colleagues and best friends. And we've got all these different like dynamics to our relationship, which I really love. Mm. And I'm very bossy and he knows that and he puts up with me, so. I, I, know, I know my place. That's uh, so, yeah, it's critical. I think what Kitty was saying is so true. I mean, I've had this extraordinary privilege of getting to know Kitty in a, in a totally different way. And in a way that perhaps, you know, the, the family dynamic can be a bit more sort of one-dimensional. And this, is, this feels so multi-dimensional in terms of what we're doing. And, and like I said earlier, it's, it's a real privilege just to sort of be in, in Kitty's slipstream when it comes to, to seeing her work. So it's, 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 it's great. And Kitty, what are your influences? And also, you must now have people coming to you asking for advice. So how is, how is that, aged 18, to be a kind of guru on bakery? It's really interesting. I think I never, ever seeked to be like a guru or any of that stuff. And I don't think I am. I'm really happy that lots of people have seen what we've done and been inspired themselves. I don't think that we've, what we've done has been even that spectacular but I do think we've just seen a different path and a different route and I'm really excited when I read messages about other people who are maybe going to explore different routes too. I think the big thing is that there is no right or wrong. School is great, the school is great for some people but it's also not great for others and it's the same with like doing a profession. You can do a profession for 10 years but then if it's not right anymore or 20 years then you can change and you can retrain and do something all over again. And so you're, you're yeah. fascinated, aren't you, by business as much as baking mm, so, and how yeah. business can be done and, and who's out there that's doing things a bit differently. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And you've gone, uh, you've gone around the world and trained with, with various different bakeries. Mm. Yeah, I've been really um, lucky. And, I mean, and like, again, we're completely self-taught and I've learned everything through books and films and YouTube videos and things like that. But um, I've been also lucky to go and do stages at different bakeries. So I've been able to go to Paris and Copenhagen. But even at the very beginning, I was just going up and down to London and learning how to shape bread or laminate croissants and all of those things. And all those bakers that I've met, I just think are extraordinary and are so cool because they've taught me so much. But also... Well, especially when I was really struggling, they showed me that there was a world outside myself and outside the house that I could be a part of. And, and they're an amazing community, the mm. baking community. So they're very, uh, they're very, very generous with their time and on all sorts of other levels. But yeah, especially when Kitty was really young, you know, that rather than see her as this sort of 15-year-old baker, they, they saw her as this really gifted young baker who they could help. And, and I think they sort of treated her on a level there, which was quite different to how you felt treated in yeah. the past. And I think that yeah. made a huge difference. I think when you're both very passionate about something, mm. it's this very lovely bridge. It means that it doesn't matter if you're different ages or from different countries or speak different languages, you're both loving and making the same thing. And I think that's really powerful and really beautiful. 
And tell us a bit about your new book, Bread Song. First of all, why it's called Bread Song and, and how you went about writing it. Was it very collaborative? Yeah, so, I mean, again, <laughs> we never thought we'd write a book. We never thought we would open a bakery. We never thought any of this would happen. But writing the book was really good for me because, I mean, especially having to be really honest about everything. There was a lot that I felt quite embarrassed about and ashamed about. And just writing and reliving it made me realise actually, like, some of the things that I said and did, that they weren't my fault, actually. Like, that was just my mental state and that I kind of learned to forgive myself for all of that. And then being able to live, relive our story was really mm. cathartic in a strange way. So I'm so excited that the book is out there. But even if it never got published, I'm so glad that we wrote it. And I think the really lovely thing has been seeing people respond to Kitty's recipes and, and, and they sort of send pictures of, of uh, their versions of, of things that she's devised. And that's brilliant because you really feel that things live on beyond the page. Yeah. Yeah, Kitty's got this whole uh, web, uh, Instagram site of all the bakes people have done from Bread Song mm. and it's been fantastic. I mean, some of them look better than when I make it and yeah. I try not to we, feel... We, we hunt them yeah, down. Yeah. Yeah. And this Bread Song is... Am I right in thinking Bread Song is the sound of the bread when it so comes out the the first other? post on my Instagram is a video of loaves and they're crackling and hissing as they come out the oven and underneath I've just written in the caption Bread Song. Clearly, baking and bread are, are huge sources of comfort to you as well as business. Perhaps aside from bread, what is comfort food to you? What, what do you reach for when you need comfort? You can include bread. I'm being <laughs> You can include bread. So I, I love a dumpling. I love them. I love any form of dumpling. If that's like almost like a ravioli. But I do just love Japanese dumplings. So we go to Costco and I get like a mega pack. And they're so easy. And when you're just not feeling it, you can just fry them up. And they're so good every time. So that's definitely my comfort. A pack of Twiglets, I think, is very, very hard. So to British. Beat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it scratches the roof of your mouth. So you've got to work hard. There's no comfort know. in it, but that's maybe. Uh, and it leaves it. your fingers looking like you've been down a coal mine. But yeah, it's, it's brilliant. Uh, and no one else in the world would understand why on earth you're eating them. So, you know, I think that's, for me, that's my, my pure comfort. <laughs> We normally finish by asking what your desert island meal would be. Again, I think I should do this separately. So, Kitty, what would your desert island meal be? You know, I probably think about this every day. It <laughs> and is, it changes much, every yeah, day. It's pretty much a regular <laughs> conversation we what's have. It, what's other, it today? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really is. So, I know it's very boring, but it's what we have basically every day for breakfast, which is just eggs and bread. And I love it. And it's so simple, but it's so comforting. It's just a really lovely, like, thick slab of bread and then loads of lovely salted butter and egg on top. That's it. Bit of pepper, bit of salt, and don't mess with it. So how, how do you have your egg? I do poached and then sometimes fried, but normally poached. Very badly poached, but sometimes very well. So it's a real mixed bag. <laughs> and Al, how about you? Uh, so there's a cafe in Pimlico called the Regency Cafe, which is just a transport cafe absolutely brilliant there's a woman with a, a voice like a foghorn who uh, runs it and they do a chicken in breadcrumbs with chips and peas that is i don't know quite how high a temperature it gets to but it can virtually sort of you can feel the crockery melting and that for me 
is my favourite meal. That, that would be my desert island meal. But I'd have to have her shouting at the same time because it's, <laughs> it's, it's not the same without that. Well, Kitty and Al, thank you very much for joining us. And their new book, Bread Song, is available now.